As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. I'm joined today by The Athletic's Tom Warville and our German football writer Raphael Honigstein. Manchester City take on Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League this week and the main storyline going into the match seems to be the future of Dortmund's Erling Haaland. With talk of his agent Mino Raiola holding a host of meetings with the continent's top clubs, he is the most sought-after striker in Europe right now, but where will he end up? Tom Warville has looked at the data to determine where he would fit in best and we'll get the view from Germany with Rafa. And with Chelsea suffering a shock 5-2 defeat to West Brom at the weekend, we'll catch up with our Chelsea correspondent Simon Johnson for the inside story on Tuchel's post-match debrief. Right now you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman. So the future of Erling Haaland will again come into sharp focus this week as Dortmund take on Man City in the Champions League. He's the most sought-after player in Europe right now. But where will he end up? We'll get Tom's view on the data shortly. But first, Rafa. Um, I was reading your piece on The Athletic this morning, Rafa, and you explained how Haaland cut a frustrated figure in Dortmund's loss to Frankfurt at the weekend, not for the first time in recent weeks. What's up with him? And what's your take on the whole situation that has been uh, played out so publicly in recent weeks? Well, he's developed this habit of looking very exasperated with teammates when things don't quite work out for him, you know, throwing his hands up in the air, shaking his head, a little bit like a toddler who's not quite happy that things are working out. Now, I think Dortmund and the players kind of put up with it as long as he scores goals. When he doesn't and when it's combined with the kind of circus that you talked about of the last few days, I think it becomes slightly more problematic. He also sort of screams out in body language, I'm too good for this place, which factually true still I think isn't quite the endearing message that uh, you maybe hope for in the dressing room so it's a little bit fraught at the moment the the wider story if you will is is Dortmund as a club still feel 
fairly relaxed by the situation. They feel that they're in control of events. They have told uh, Team Haaland that only an extraordinary offer north of 150 million euros, there or thereabouts, will will shift Haaland this this summer. And I think there is a belief uh, in Dortmund that no one's going to be able to come up with that that figure. And if they do, then that would be possibly acceptable to for you know fast forward a deal that will definitely happen next year when his release clause kicks in so having drawn that line if you will in the sand i think they are reasonably relaxed about the situation but of course they were also a little bit unhappy that this very public show of negotiation or you know interest or whatever you want to call it coincided with what was their biggest game of the season effectively against frankfurt which they lost and now are looking at a season without the Champions League and all the complications that brings with it. Yeah, you mentioned them being relaxed. They were relaxed last summer with Jadon Sancho, relatively speaking, and uh, he ended up staying there. We'll come on to those teams you talk about in a little bit. We'll look at the data as well. Um, I thought it was fairly extraordinary that this was played out so publicly, especially because if you have a client of Erling Haaland's um, ilk, the clubs that want him should really be coming to you. You should be able to sit in your office in Monaco if you're Mino Raiola and they should form an orderly queue outside to present um, to you. So I did find it a bit curious that he seemed to be conducting this public roadshow, but perhaps that's Mino's way. Um, He has also taken to social media uh, just today to brand a lot of the stories about potential commission on his part to be fake news. He clearly doesn't want this message going out that Haaland is going to be a, a huge obstacle financially for the likes of Manchester City with various stories about the potential transfer fee and the salary package taking this deal into the hundreds of millions of pounds and and perhaps putting off a lot of clubs this summer. He could be out of their reach. But if we just do one final question on Dortmund. Um, they struggled again at the weekend. It's now looking like, as you point out in your piece, that unless they win this season's Champions League, they may well not qualify next season. What does that mean for Haaland's f- immediate future? And I, I see there's been some quotes on that specific subject from Vatska today. Well, firstly, just to come back to the uh, travelling circus bit. I mean, the same thing happened with Haaland one and a half years ago before he moved to Dortmund. Mino Raila put him in a jet. They were flying to Leipzig. They were flying to Dortmund. They were flying to Turin. Um, I don't know if they ever touched down in Manchester, but as you know, they had those discussions as well. So Dortmund are not surprised by this. Uh, This is the way that Raila does business. Um, I think he wants the clubs to pitch to them. And maybe that includes, you know, things that the clubs find easier to do on the ground you know this is our training ground this is how we see things this is maybe our sporting director i think it's a whole going through the the motions business of of understanding what what the project would be and maybe it's not financial at this point so i think we can maybe take that at face value what what Raula is saying with dortmund there's a very good website that tries to live track the income from European clubs for the Champions League and the Europa League and they have the estimate for Dortmund in this season in the Champions League for 82 million euros that's before they move any further and the likelihood is that they they won't after playing Manchester City now the best placed German Europa League team which is Leverkusen who got knocked out in the last 32 
they're on 10.6 million euros. That shows you the difference. And this is just prize money. This is not money from sponsors. This is not money from, um, you know, selling out stadiums in normal times. This is this is how big the difference can be. So it, it will hurt Dortmund. I think it'll hurt them less vis-a-vis a possible sale for Sancho and Haaland. I think those prices, those price tags, if you will, those basic ideas are untouched by all of that. But it hurts them a lot more in terms of rebuilding the squad, re-engineering the squad, and maybe um, having a move away from this emphasis on youth and trying to find a bit more consistency, courtesy of players who will stick around a bit more and maybe join the club a bit later or stay for longer. But it's it's not an easy one to pull off. I mean, Vatska was, was basically saying that he can no longer defend the team in light of this bad performance. He was very, very disappointed. And financially, they're going to they're gonna take a hit. So that's where we are. And that's when the potential suitors come into the picture. We saw Pep Guardiola's quotes at the end of last week. And um, even before he had said that, I was being led to believe by a number of contacts that Erling Haaland was not going to be coming to Manchester City this summer, that they were not willing to pay the sort of fee and salary it's going to take and get involved in a bidding war, which is something they've well, not really done with any player. And and Pep and uh, Mino Ralov, of course, famously get on like a house on fire, <laughs> literally a house on fire. Yeah, so th- there, there is that animosity as well. But I, I don't think it was just a public play from Pep's perspective. I, I was being told on, on really good authority that they're not in this mix this summer. And if that proves to be true, it will be fascinating, not just for his situation, but who, if anyone, they do end up going for. Because I think they will pursue an attacker despite what Pep said. And that's where I'd like to bring Simon in before we throw it to Tom on, on the actual numbers. Because Chelsea are a well-documented suitor, first reported by Simon in my Monday column quite a few weeks ago, that they would be pushing hard for Haaland this summer. So, Simon, um, a, a relatively brief answer from you. Do you think he'll be coming to Chelsea or do you think he's best suited to another club? Oh, I, I think he's he's definitely suited for Chelsea, but uh, him coming to Chelsea, as I wrote in, in January, it, they're always going to be up against it um, because are they one of the sort of genuine sort of big clubs in, in Haaland's eyes? Um, now, they have flirted with him before um, and they have made moves to smooth things over a little bit with Mino Raiola um, in, in recent months because if you remember, Chelsea and Mino Raiola didn't exactly get on that great over the Romelu Lukaku deal which Antonio Conte wasn't too delighted about. So I think that I think there's been news made to try and sort of smooth things over. But as I wrote in January, they're always going to be up against it. But, you know, this is Roman Abramovich. When, when he wants a big-name player, he certainly is going to make a move to get that big-name player. But we are talking astronomical sums. They're going to have to smash the transfer record that they've set with Kepper and Stroke Kai Havertz if all the adults kick in. So they're up against it. But the whole point is... They see Haaland as someone that can turn them from sort of a top four kind of side back to a Premier League, Champions League contending side. Yeah, there's a view from Manchester City, which I've picked up on in recent weeks, that Real Madrid hold the aces with this deal if they decide to go for him and put the money behind him in a way that they've not done since the Hazard deal, really, then they will get him. They're in the driving seat. If they don't or can't finance it, then obviously... 
it's open and and other clubs like Chelsea, for instance, maybe even Manchester United. We've seen the historical links and his close ties with uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer uh, may get involved and, and Barcelona too, because uh, despite their perilous financial situation, um, there's a there's a huge bank loan su- secured by the um, the new president. Uh, Joan Laporta. Um, so, Tom, the numbers. Where would Haaland be best suited to play his football if indeed he's to leave Dortmund this summer? It's a really interesting question. I mean, I think it's nice to start with just the numbers on his scoring because it is just so incredible, really. Um, I mean, Robert Lewandowski leads the way quite extremely, really. He's got 29 on penalty goals this season, which Haaland's the next highest after that joint with Lionel Messi uh, with 20. But Haaland's, I mean, he's got 13 years on Messi and he's got 16 years on Cristiano Ronaldo, who scored 19 non penalty goals. So the goal scoring numbers kind of speak for themselves, really. But away from that, stylistically, he is very much a poacher. I mean, he links play a lot. He receives the ball in the box a lot. But off the ball, he really doesn't add much. I mean, he's he's made nine tackles and eight interceptions in his whole Bundesliga career for Dortmund, which tells you everything about his uh, his aptitude to press potentially out of possession. So I think stylistically, you're looking at a team which is using their striker maybe a little bit in build-up. They're very reliant on them at scoring, which is something that Haaland does so well. So I think it's quite difficult to look away from, from Chelsea as an option. I mean, Tammy Abraham's Chelsea's top uh, non-penalty goal scorer this season with six goals. After that, you've got Timo Werner, Mason Mount. Chelsea have always been a team which have had a very obvious player who they're going to for goals. You know, you think of Didier Drogba, players of, of that ilk that they've had in the past. And Haaland just fits that bill. He just, I guess, looks like a sort of player that, that Chelsea would, would have, a uh, kind of pure goal scorer. But, uh, you know, elsewhere, you've got Real Madrid and Barcelona, which I think stylistically... Real aren't too far away from from Dortmund. Barcelona are a lot more kind of possession heavy, uh, and that would be you know something slightly different for him. But both teams have one kind of single source of goals. They're both thirty three years old in, in Messi and Benzema, and both teams need to move on from those talents, which are uh, essentially the reason for a lot of their recent successes. So, style of play wise. Maybe the fit isn't there, but both need to invest to kind of guarantee their their future. You see what happens when the likes of, say, Arsenal or even Real Madrid themselves haven't reinvested after Ronaldo or Arsenal after even Wenger or, or you know, recent players. It's really important that you get that reinvestment right to ensure the kind of long-term future of the club. So those are the main ones for me. Um, Liverpool are an interesting one, but I think financially... I think the profile to Firmino, we've spoken about on on Ask Ornstein before, is is totally different, really. So um, yeah, those are those are the ones. But Haaland's a pure goal scorer, and I think anywhere he goes, the style of fit maybe isn't all that important because he's just he's ruthless. It's a fascinating situation because, on the one hand, you've got clubs looking at their finances during a pandemic, and despite FFP rules being relaxed somewhat. Um, you imagine if they've got a credible opportunity to get Haaland. Um, and it, as Simon reported in January, when Chelsea were, were, you know, we first reported that Chelsea were going to make a concerted effort this summer. Could could a club steal a march on their rivals um, this time round and try and nip in even at great expense and get a player who over the next decade looks like he's going to score absolute bags of goals and help a club towards success? Or do we wait until the summer of 2022 and see them all scrap it out uh, over his 75 million euros release clause? 
as a complete guess, I'm starting to think when you listen to the likes of Pep Guardiola and you hear information and you look at club finances that he might well stay and leave in the summer of 2022 despite all of our conversations. Uh, from a journalistic point of view, I hope I'm proved wrong so we have a, a big deal, deal to talk about this summer. I'm going to finish on Haaland where I started with Raf and just ask what your current sense is on where he will end up, if at all, this summer. Well, I think it's going to be very difficult for the two clubs in Spain to find the kind of money needed to to get him out of Dortmund. I think a lot of the stuff that we will see now is laying the ground for work for, for next season and it's not unf- unfeasible or it's not unimaginable that Mino Raiola might come to a pre-agreement with the club for next season that they will trigger the release clause but they will commit already maybe six months in advance to go to that club um, for of course a certain advance in handshakes and all this kind of stuff that comes with it. This is just my hunch. Um, I, I just don't see the big bidding war this season. I just don't think the money is there. And I think there's another factor which is rarely discussed. Um, unless unless there is a huge incentive to to participate in a transfer fee on behalf of the player this year, which I don't think there is from anything I know, it is actually not in the player's interest to leave for a huge transfer fee if he can leave for probably half the transfer fee next year because a lot of that difference of money saved in inverted commas will end up back in the pockets of the player and his advisors uh, in, 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 in the sense of a huge sign-on fee that will be much bigger next year. So I still think that Dortmund are right to be confident about keeping him and unless somebody finds a lot of money in unexpected places over the next few months I think there's still a strong chance we see him in a yellow shirt next year. Can can I just quickly add that that what I did write was that I I think Chelsea are quite realistic in that with with the release clause kicking 2022 and the kind of opposition they'll be up against that this summer that's why they were thinking this summer would be they're probably their best chance if they could somehow find the money behind the back of the sofa. I'm sure Roman's got a lot stacked back there to try and come up with the money now. A bit like with the the Havertz and the, and the Werner deal where they, they struck because clubs across Europe didn't have the money to buy them and they thought right now's the time to strike, even, it, even though perhaps it was a bit early in their career, certainly in Kai Havertz's case. But yeah, if it goes into 2022... I think um, Chelsea will be up against the kind of opposition that they won't be able to to beat because, the, as you say, David, Real Madrid, um, when it comes to sort of trying to compete with them, um, a player's always going to pick a Real Madrid over a Chelsea, I'm afraid. Yeah, thanks for clarifying, Simon. And, and Danko, Raf, we will uh, speak to you soon. Um, for anybody who wants to hear more from Raf and the Bundesliga, um, check out his uh, personal uh, podcast. It's called Stylecast and it's on The Athletic. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Now we've got Simon in the hot seat, we're going to stick with him because Chelsea, Thomas Tuchel, uh, where he suffered his first defeat as Chelsea manager on Saturday, a shock 5-2 thrashing at the hands of West Bromwich Albion. Not ideal preparation for a Champions League quarter-final against Porto this week. Simon, Tuchel appeared quite calm at the final whistle, but once in the dressing room, uh, we seem to be hearing that things got a little bit heated. Tell us what you know and have reported on The Athletic. Yeah, well, he he, he walked into... And let's be honest, you'd be a bit surprised if he walked into a dressing room after that performance and everyone was just high-fiving each other and, and it was all hugs and cuddles. No, he walked in and there were a lot of players um, in, in heated discussions over what had just transpired. And, and that's why... And I actually asked him about it um, in the post-match press conference and subsequently found out that what he said to me was also actually what he said to the players, which was, right, keep calm, Let, now's not the time, you're all too emotional, we'll, we'll, we'll readdress this in the morning uh, at training. Now, as I've reported to, today, he actually was the one that did most of the talking in the morning when they all got round to um, study the video, the many video clips that I'm sure Tuchel had prepared because it was a, it was a shocking performance defensively. Um, and as as one source um, told me, uh, watching it back was like a horror show because he was highlighting not just the goals but the phases of play where where Chelsea were getting things wrong. Now I'm sure Tuchel would have thought, excellent, I've dealt with it. Now on to Porto, that the group split up into players who were who'd obviously featured the day before, so they had sort of a light recovery kind of session planned. And the non-playing players got to have a little small-sided game. And that's when Tony Rudiger and Kepper decided to um, escalate things, perhaps take some of their frustrations of being on the bench um, on, on Saturday on each other. From what I'm hearing, Kepper had a few verbals with, with Rudiger. That got Tony's back up. Um, they then collided over a challenge. And then it got a little bit frisky. <laughs> there was... Uh, it's described as pushing and shoving. It was quite strong, I think. There's a reason why Rudiger was sent indoors. Now, there were hugs afterwards. They apologised, etc. But it'll be interesting to see what happens with Rudiger in terms of the team on against Porto on Wednesday. He's been in tremendous form, but it was a serious enough incident for, for Tuchel to be concerned to send him in. And, and he may sort of decide to send him a message by leaving him out against Porto. We'll wait and see. Yeah, well, he didn't play at the weekend. And I think Chelsea will hope that this is a sign that everybody cares. They're angry sure. at defeat and they're determined to uh, win in, in midweek in what's the biggest game of their season, really, in Tuchel's reign. Um, hopefully that will show their fighting spirit. Specifically on what we saw against West Brom, I don't need you to go into the detail of the match itself, but more the wider context. Was this a blip, a first blip for Thomas Tuchel, or do you sense any wider issues at play here? I think that there was a reminder of wider issues of the last few years that there are players there that when in the face of adversity um, that, that don't react very well. Um, previous managers have talked about the mentality of, of these players. Where are the leaders? And in fact, in fairness to Rudiger, he was one of the loudest voices on Saturday afternoon and he's in the stands. There's something wrong with that, clearly. Um, now, it didn't help that Thiago Silva, who who leads by example rather vocally, rather vocally, because of course his English isn't great, um, was off the pitch. But that there is an issue there that's been going on for a number of years, that, that Chelsea don't have the kind of leaders they had in the past. 
you John Terry's Frank Lampard's Michael Ballack's list goes on um, at the moment you sort of when when they when things are going wrong there are players there that just don't seem to know how to react and before Saturday's game they'd only trailed the 21 minutes under Thomas Tuchel and that was at Southampton so there was that question mark what would happen if things genuinely went wrong in a game and we saw on Saturday that they didn't really have the the wherewithal to respond in the right fashion. And that would, that is an ongoing concern that I'm sure Tuchel will have noticed now and will be thinking with transfers in mind that perhaps he needs more leaders in that dressing room. I am going to come back to that in a sec, but throw this to Tom with your analytics hat on. What have you made under uh, of Chelsea under Tuchel so far? And also what sort of chance do they stand going into this Porto tie, which to... Many observers will seem a great draw for Chelsea, but for anybody who watched uh, Porto knock Juventus out, I think we know the threats that they pose and they're not insignificant, Tom. Yeah, for sure. I mean, starting about how good Chelsea have been under Tuchel, um, I think that defensively they've been fantastic. And going forward, they've definitely been, been pretty subpar. And I think that linking back to the previous section, that's why the need for a striker is so, is so important for Chelsea. I mean, by the numbers, they've had the best uh, defensive record even with the West Brom game uh, in terms of expected goals uh, against um, even better than Manchester City in that time uh, better than Brighton who are the kind of analytics sweethearts this season and I think that's largely driven by them being really good at using possession in a kind of defensive manner you know there's only one ball teams can't create they can't score if they don't have it and Chelsea are just very good at, at using possession to kind of kill the game and, and open teams up similar um, to, to City under Guardiola but going forwards I mean since Tuchel's arrived there's six 16th in the league for non-penalty goals per game. Only Palace, Fulham, Sheffield United and Wolves have scored fewer. And that's backed by, I mean, they're creating slightly better chances around league average from that, but still shows that they're not really an attacking force. They are definitely a defensive force, but it's not quite clicking going forwards. They're not creating many amazing chances uh, on a given game. But looking forward to the Porto tie, I mean, this is a side which, I mean, Porto are just so perfectly suited to to beat Chelsea on their day I feel you know Chelsea are going to try and pick them off they're going to you know use possession and Porto are going to sit back and it's going to be I feel a bit of a maybe a repeat of, of the Juve tie perhaps um, and if Porto are going to get chances they'll get one or two on the break and it'll be a you know a flip of the coin of if they can you know score them or not um, I think that we saw some fantastic individual performances last time around Pepe was it something like 21 clearances or something like that across the two across the two fixtures and you know he's going to be a busy boy again I think in this fixture but you're not going to see a repeat of the Sergio Oliveira free kick that is kind of one of those goals of the season which happens once you can't really rely on that again but I think Chelsea will dominate possession this tie and if they can dominate the transition as well and defend that well then they should be fine. Well, let's wrap the Chelsea section up, Simon, with a two-pronged question. Firstly, can you underline to our listeners and viewers, because this may be going out on YouTube as well, the importance of Champions League to Chelsea? I mean, off the back of £220 million investment last summer uh, and the expectations of Chelsea Football Club full stop. And that leads me perfectly into the recruitment side of things as well. Where are they starting to look heading into this window? You've written about the defence. We We've heard names flying around. I've heard that Kunde is is a name that's on one of their lists. I don't know how high up that is. Um, and 
more broadly speaking, what might they be looking to do in the recruitment department? We we saw links on on the back page of the the Daily Mail recently. Sergio Aguero on a on a free transfer from Manchester City, which would be a bit surprising. But then you've got an experienced centre forward out of contract in Olivier Giroud, thirty four. Sergio Aguero's thirty two. But then we've talked about the Haaland situation. So rather than me rambling all over the pitch, uh, you focus us in on those two questions: Champions League. And recruitment. Uh, first of all, Champions League, massive. I mean, it, there's a reason why they sacked Frank Lampard in, in January was because they saw Champions League football slipping away and they brought in Thomas Tuchel to get them in the top four. They've still got a great chance of doing that. It's still in their hands, regardless of West Ham, West Ham's result against Wolves because they play West Ham soon. They've got a good chance, but it's important for their finances. Uh, normally, Chelsea are very good at selling players as well as bringing players in. And last summer, yes, they were spent big, but they didn't sell big, and they're still going to have an issue in a in a in an industry where where COVID, the pandemic, has had an impact on clubs' finances in shifting the kind of players they want to shift. So Champions League football is massive in terms of bringing revenue in, and also for attracting a player. If if they've got any chance of signing Haaland, they've got to be in the Champions League. Is your second question in terms of where they're they're looking to recruit? There's two main. Two main positions, um, striker, which we've covered in great detail, centre-back. Centre-back is, is, has been a, a flaw for a while. You've, you've got Thiago Silva, of course, who's been, I think, a fine acquisition, but he's 36. Um, there's still question marks whether he will sign the option in his contract. I think Chelsea want that to happen regardless because of his leadership, but he's clearly not going to be playing uh, regularly, I mean, he's just spent two months out of the team with an injury. Um, then you've got other players whose contracts are running down. Who do you keep? You've got players that perhaps you cash in on, like a Kurt Zuma, um, but they want a big centre. They want a big centre back. Um, now, one of the names that that has been mentioned consistently as well as Kunde is um, Nikasula, who's a player that they looked at a few years ago before he joined Bayern Munich perhaps hasn't had um, or things perhaps may not be going as well for him at Bayern recently as, as perhaps you would have wished and he's definitely one of the names they're looking at but yeah you can understand why centre-back is is an area of concern especially in light of what happened on Saturday as well because we saw that when things started going wrong they didn't have that leader to, to organise them to, to see the game out. Simon, thank you on that. And um, uh, Sula reminds me of Chelsea. I think I messaged you about this. The, the new Robert Huth. And talking of which, there's a really good piece by Rob Tanner, our Leicester City correspondent, with Huth. Lovely interview on The Athletic now. So go and check that out. But as for Chelsea, thanks very much. And we're going to throw things on now to England. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. 
now on the pod, it's time for On The Plane, our weekly feature with the slightly curious title, given that England will be taking a bus, I guess, to most of their matches, although perhaps an internal private jet. Anyway, it's looking at how the England squad is shaping up ahead of Euro 2020. The Athletics Aston Villa writer Greg Evans is with us, as today our focus is on Jack Grealish and another area with Villa involvement, the centre-backs. Greg, welcome. Thanks very much for your time. Let's start with Grealish, because you've written a piece which paints a bit of a worrying picture of him, as it seems he faces a race to be fit for the tournament. Uh, What's the latest on that? Uh, yeah, well, he's injured again, David, so uh, not not very good at all for Aston Villa, not good for England, really. Um, we hope that it's not a serious injury, but we, we don't really know how long he's going to be out for at the moment because Dean Smith has simply said that, there's, that he's not putting a timescale on the return. That in itself is a little bit worrying and a little bit more concerning than, than maybe what what we knew beforehand. I mean, we were told when he first picked up the shin injury um, at the back end of February that he was going to be out for between four and five weeks now. It was up to six weeks, wasn't it, um, leading up to the, the Fulham game. And, and, and Jack Grealish, you know, he trained all week. He, he, he felt ready, thought that he was going to play in this Fulham game. Um, but in the final training session on Saturday, he pulled up after just 10 minutes uh, of the session and, and, and felt pain in the same area, you know, the same shin injury. Um, and wasn't risked and and, you know if Jack Grealish a player who wants to play football more than anybody else uh, tells you that he's got a pain in in, in his leg and he can't play then that is a big concern. This is really one for us to keep an eye on one because he has been so impressive and you would imagine that he would walk into that squad based on what we've seen over the last couple of seasons there is a bit of background to, to the Grealish England situation obviously he declared at a later stage to to represent England as opposed to the Republic of Ireland there were concerns about how Gareth Southgate viewed him some of the perhaps you could call them indiscretions off the pitch certainly at at the start of lockdown there was one I don't think it was the smoothest uh, time for Jack Grealish when he was with the England under 21s as well so perhaps a bit of fallout from that which delayed maybe his inclusion under Southgate because Southgate really works on a basis of trust and um, seeing these players as being real ambassadors on and off the pitch but he has broken through Um, he's a fan's favourite really not just with Aston Villa fans I I look around social media and 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 the wider media and message boards and things and they're baying with Southgate to, to include him in not just the squad but the team for the Euros and there were some reports last week that he and Jaden Sancho might not be included in that squad and very quickly some counter reports came out which I presume may have been briefed by the Football Association that no they those two very much are in, in Gareth Southgate's thoughts but sort of what's the nature of this injury and and how key is it that he gets back on the pitch as soon as possible just to make triple sure that he's not on that plane perhaps on that bus to the Euros uh, this summer yeah well it, it's the same shin injury that, that has now ruled him out of seven games which is you know the most concerning thing for him so it's a case of he needs rest more than anything you know Jack Grealish has played through injuries in the past for Aston Villa fortunately that that hasn't been to the detriment of him but an injury this serious he, you know he simply can't just be rolled out and played because you know one knock to the leg you might end up breaking his leg or, or you know sustaining an even worse injury so he simply cannot play at the moment he needs rest uh, we don't know how long he's going to be out for but you know Jack Grealish is a player that 
admittedly says himself he needs to have a little bit of rhythm to know that he's in his best form and um, I think what you'll see over you know the course of his career is that when he has a prolonged run of games in the team that's when he's at his very best um, so you know there's only seven weeks of the season remaining isn't there so he will want to get back out there as soon as possible to show Gareth Southgate Look, this is what I was doing at the start of the season when I got ten goals, where I got six. Uh, sorry, where I got ten assists and I got six goals. You know, don't forget about me. I'm still here, um, and I think that's what he'll want to do. And but the games are running out, aren't they, David? So he, he he needs to he needs to get back fit and get playing. Yeah, we talked about Mason Mount last week, and I was very clear in my belief that if he's fit and on the current form that he's been on, then I think he has a really good chance of starting but I would love equally and I do think they can play together despite what some of our promotion around last week's YouTube video showed I, I don't think we should play them off against each other I think there is a space for Grealish as well and I would love to see him there there's also a school of thought that if he recovers in time from this injury then he might actually have benefited from that rest and be one of the freshest players and one of the most dangerous weapons for England going into that Euros. And that's where I'm going to bring Tom Warville back in because I want to ask how you think a fit Jack Grealish would fit into that England system. Would you have him in the starting eleven? And where where do you think Southgate uses him and utilises him best within his setup? Yeah, I, I do think he does start, but I think he starts more as you know, alongside Mount and Rice in a midfield three versus on the wing. And the main reason for that is that a lot of Grealish's value is either carrying the ball upfield and beating players um, or it's passing the ball into the area. I mean, he's passed the ball into the penalty area in open play more than any player in the Premier League this season. So that, to me, is the role that Harry Kane's going to play. He's going to be the one who maybe drops deep and he's assisting or he's trying to feed those balls in from, from deep into the penalty area to Sterling, to Rashford, to whoever's kind of flanking him on, on either side. So I don't think you need both him and, and Grealish being able to do that. So yeah, potentially in midfield. But then the flip side is that I don't think there's any shame in bringing Grealish off the bench. I mean, we've got five subs at the Euros. I think there's a, a great capacity to be really innovative tactically and, and bringing on, you know, whole sweeping changes that we've seen Barnsley do a lot of in the Championship this season. I mean, Barnsley will keep their press going from minute 60 to minute 90 by just wholesale replacing their front three. And I think that, you know, using Grealish as that wildcard option from the bench to maybe give Mount a bit of rest, to maybe use him and change the plan up front is another uh, situation as well. So I, I do think one of those two is best. And I just think that Rashford and Sterling are, are so strong in the roles that they have for England, um, that those are the, the key ones to kind of play off, off Kane up top. Greg, you've got to know Jack really well over the years, um, especially being on the, the Villa patch. How nervous or anxious will he be about his place given the rise of players like Lingard and that competition for places, fitness permitting, in the creative slots? No, I don't think he is actually nervous anymore. I think I think he's you know he's had his audition against Belgium, real top level opponents, and you know Kevin De Bruyne was the player who came up to him after the game and said, "Can we swap shirts?" And I think that really boosted his confidence. And I think that Jack Grealish knows that what he's done in his time with England now, in you know admittedly a short time, um, has been enough to, to to show Gareth Southgate what he's all about. And I feel like. He's a very confident player, you know, he, he believes in his own abilities and I think he knows now that he's good enough to be in that England team, um, certainly in the squad. 
and, and I don't really think he's he's too bothered about what other players are doing. But I think we have to be honest and look at you know at the outside, <clears throat> excuse me, and and, and recognise that Lingard's had a good run at West Ham. He, he did quite well, didn't he, for England as well in in the last international break. And there are other players as well to contend with, you know, and, and players that are already in Southgate's mind, the likes of Rashford as and, and Sterling, obviously, as, as Tom's previously mentioned. I actually think Grealish. I'd like to see Grealish in his left wing position I think Grealish Kane and Sterling would work really well you know that that's my preference maybe I'm a bit biased because I watch him every week but that's just what I think would work well for England as well Oh, you're going to have the Rashford fans after you and, and <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Rashford as well the problem is I just say include every player um, <laughs> and no one will be left out however one who uh, is not in the first choice centre back lineup at the moment. Who has uh, Villa interest is Tyrone Mings. He is, however, in the squad. There were times that I was leaning towards thinking he was going to start at this Euros, but just now he seems to have dropped back in in Southgate's thinking, primarily due to the rise, I guess, of of John Stones. How do you see that playing out, Greg? Yeah, I don't see him starting. Unfortunately, I think I think Tyrone Mings is very favourable um, because he's left footed, and and you know we haven't got many left footers in 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 the squad. Yeah, you know, certainly in defensive positions, uh, I think I think he'll go to the Euros. I don't see him starting. I feel like Southgate likes both Maguire and Stones certainly ahead of him, and and if Southgate decides to play for th- with three, I feel like Walker will be the the additional centre half there with 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 Stones and uh, Maguire. So. You know, I think I think Mings will be a good squad player. I think that if he's called upon, he'll certainly um, he certainly won't let England down. There was a little bit of a mishap last night against Fulham when when he you know it was his mistake that that allowed Mitrovic the opening goal. But what I like about Mings is his character. It, it was it was Mings who was driving that team forward in the second half. You know, we even seen him up on the left wing. Creating, creating the goal for Trezeguet, which was the equaliser, which we, we, don't, we don't see that anymore from Tyrone Mings. He's, he's not a left-back anymore, he's a, he's a centre-back. But um, I really like his character. I think Gareth, Gareth Southgate recognises his leader as well. So um, I see him be, being a big part of the squad, but not in the starting lineup. Yeah, so do I. And you actually touched on, accidentally, maybe a really interesting point there, that he's played left-back in his career. Gareth Southgate likes versatility. I'm not for a moment suggesting he's going to use him there, but... He is a fan of players and and especially um, with this squad size going into the Euros who can play in multiple positions. That could be important and that's perhaps why Eric Dyer and a, and a couple of others have, have been picked by him consistently over time. Tom, that left foot of Tyrone Mings, how much favour does that hold him in statistically? Aside from all of the points that, that Greg has mentioned and another I'd add is that I do think... Um, Mings is, has become a bit of a statesman-like figure within football and, and I do think Gareth Southgate likes all of those factors but if we're to f- hone in right now on, on the technical side the left-footed position and does that make him a nail-on for this squad in, in your opinion, Tom? Yeah, I think so because, I mean, the reason why managers love left-footed centre-backs is because it means that it's such it's far more easy to to make passes out to the left back that kind of curve away from the inside of the pitch and they're more difficult um, anecdotally to intercept and therefore it makes build-up just smoother both down the right and the left. And I think that's important because Southgate's mentioned a lot about being kind of versatile tactically in, in recent weeks and the run-up to these three recent internationals. And I think that for England, that tactical versatility is being able to play back three or a back four if it is a back three, there's more of the onus on the left side of centre back to be able to feed the ball to the left left side of wing back, and having a left footer like Mings in there as that option is is really useful. So 
it's really important and it's why that you know you see that Mings goes for the fee that he does and there's likely attention on him at some point because left foot centre backs in the Premier League are actually quite rare. So yeah, I think that there's value in in him being there and I think that he's a great squad pickup for Southgate. But also if he's called upon, he's a you know really, really top player and that left foot will come in really, really handy. Absolutely. And and Southgate does like continuity. Mings has now been a, a, around the squad for a long time. So he's kind of within the system and Southgate doesn't often pluck people out of nowhere, which may, Greg, um, work against somebody like Esri Konza because I do speak to a lot of people within the game around Villa and elsewhere who have this sort of quiet sense that Konza is actually superior or, or on the path to being superior to Tyrone Mings. He qualifies to play for England. Um, he's just signed a new contract at Aston Villa, by the way, as as you reported. Um, he qualifies to play for a couple of other countries as well. I think DR Congo and even Portugal we mentioned in my column a few weeks ago. You wrote about um, Konza recently, Greg. Um, do you think he could have been an outside pick for the, the England squad? I guess it's probably too late now. I think it's too late now, David. Yeah, I think that... I think Gareth Southgate missed a trick not taking him into the last squad and just having a closer look at him. Um, I mean, Ollie Watkins was called up, wasn't he? And and got a few minutes you know, against San Marino. But, but it was basically... Uh, a move from Southgate to have a closer look at Watkins I think I, I, I would have seen no harm in, in Southgate doing that with Conza as well having a look at him seeing what he's like capable of seeing what he um, whether he can fit into the style that he likes I think he's had a great season for Aston Villa yeah and, and the points that you mentioned there there are a lot of Villa supporters that think he's better than Mings I actually think the two of them complement each other very well me and Tom put a, put a story together a couple of weeks back just explaining what type of defender Konza was and he's not one to really go um, actively looking for the danger he lets the danger come to him and then he's in a good position to mop up and, and, and clear the danger away so um, we compared him very much to to, to the lit of, um, of, of Juventus but possibly not quite at the level of him um, just yet so he's certainly one for the future he's only 23 years old he's learning from his mistakes in the Premier League he's, he's working very closely with John Terry at Aston Villa um, who's given him you know great words of advice on, on how to be a good centre-back and and I think he's one to watch for the future but yeah just a little bit too soon for him this summer the Villa Delic there we go that's a good place <laughs> to leave it I'm going to credit you two with that when it goes viral gents thank you very much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure and there'll be more on the plane on next week's pod and over on the Athletics YouTube channel right that's it thanks very much for listening as ever We'll be back here next week and Mark will be back on Thursday with Matt Slater for the Business of Sport podcast. Bye for now. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.